0: The history of science and medicine you were taught in school doesn't tell the whole story. Our legacy is full of unsung heroes who made incredible contributions that just haven't been recognized, and there are too many suppressed stories of exploitation under the guise of scientific research. As biomedical scientists and seekers of justice, we want to uncover the hidden side of science and make these stories known. People of all races, genders, nationalities, sexualities, and abilities have always been essential to pushing the field forward. It's time for us all to Reclaim the Bench.
1: So welcome to Reclaim the Bench again. This is episode four.
0: Yeah. I'm Jamal. I'm Megan.
1: And... We're your co-hosts that we've hoped that you've come to know and love by now.
0: (laughs) It might take a little bit longer to love us, but you'll get there eventually. We'll
1: grow on you. (laughs) (laughs) So Megan, what's up? How was your week?
0: You know, we always record on Friday afternoons, Mm -hmm. and by Friday afternoon, I've just forgotten how my entire week went. (laughs) I'm just in the fog of like, what did I even do? Today I was scoring behavior videos, so we work in a neuroscience lab and we do a lot of animal behavior, which involves putting animals on different apparatuses and then basically using a stopwatch and determining how much time they spend sniffing different objects. So you can just be watching those videos for hours and just completely zone out into like the twilight zone of mouse behavior. So I'm kind of still in that fog
1: right now. So I mean, for anybody out there who doesn't know what neuroscientists do, they're probably like, "Oh, so they just watch videos yeah. of animals with stopwatches? Like, I can do that. Why do you need a PhD for that?" That's a good so question. Thanks for the, you know promoting. The great work that we do. In our
0: <laughs> we do a lot of other, much more exciting things too, but just like with any job, probably there's grunt work that has to be done.
1: And mm-hmm. the reality is actually anybody can do this. Yeah, I agree. Um, and any of these uh, biomedical scientists, mm-hmm. I think really, if you're interested, it's yeah. probably enough to get you where you want to go. You might have to take some classes you don't want to take, and some of them might be really hard, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know about your experience, but for me, undergrad was so much more difficult. I'm I'm assuming your experience, medical school, was so much more difficult. But me, like the formal classes and like having a bunch of them and things due on time and some of them you like, some of them you don't. That was like the hard part for me. Like the PhD stuff is like really easy because it seems more natural. It's like a job Mm -hmm. that you really like and you get paid some money to be here.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like I call it going to work because it feels like work. It's like a nine to five job. We come, we do our work. And I mean, of course, we do some things outside of those hours, too. But it's mainly just a job instead of sitting in a lecture doing homework. It's not really classes. So people are always surprised when I describe it as work. They're like, aren't you in school? And it's like, yes, but it's a different kind of school than you think of. So, yeah, I agree that undergrad was probably the hardest and med school. Med school is very hard and there's a lot of deadlines. But, um, yeah, if you're interested in science and you're willing to work hard, like I really think anyone can do it. Yeah,
1: anybody can do it. I think that people also misunderstand, like, if we have certain points where we stop working, which we don't.
2: So, yeah. <laughs> like, even
1: other graduate students that's not in biomedical science, mm-hmm. um, like in math, for example, I have a friend there. we like, oh, how was your semester? Or are you ready for the semester? And I'm like, I don't even know when semesters start starting yeah, again. Right? Like, we don't take breaks. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, like, holidays, the major ones. Yeah. If your boss is nice enough, you can take a vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are, like, some parts of it. But it's not like school at all. But actually, when you go back to medical school, you won't have any classes either, right? It would be, like, rotations or something.
0: Yeah, so the first two years of medical school are what you think of as typical classes, pretty much sitting in a lecture hall, having someone teach you about the human body. Um, You also have like group discussions and things that like case studies, things you talk through, but it's pretty much all in the classroom. So that's year one and two. So I finished that. And then year three and four, like you said, it's mainly rotations. So you actually are in the hospital most of the time going through all of the major specialties Acting as part of the medical care team, I think there's like a few classes in there, um, but definitely most of the time is spent in the hospital.
1: Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. So really, from here on out, everything you're doing is like hands-on. Like yes. you don't go back to, you know, studying for exams every week. And Thank stuff like that,
0: right? goodness I had my last class last semester, my first year of the PhD, and afterwards I was just like, wait. I've been going to school for like 20 plus years, and I just had my last class. Yep. It was amazing. Yep. It was so nice.
1: Yeah, I'm, same here. I'm also mm-hmm. done. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just get to do what I want to do every day. So you can't ask for more than that.
2: Really. <laughs> <laughs> so how's
0: your week been then?
1: Um, just working on podcast stuff, yeah. right, like we've been doing. Just still working on some manuscripts for a couple studies about to come out. And that's about it. Just writing and analysis. The analysis that I do, if anybody cares, is uh, <laughs> mainly now. So I am um, considered a neuroscientist, and I study the brain, but I study more pathway stuff, which means like how certain some biological molecules communicate with other biological molecules. <laughs> that's a mouthful, they, though. Yeah, and how they're different in particular disease models. I use the computer a lot to look at the brain and to see how these pathways are disrupted. Mm-hmm. So we break down this genetic material into bits of data, and we look how that bits of data is different within different conditions. And it takes a lot of time, but it's really engaging, really interesting. Yeah. And so we actually need more computer scientists and biology. Yes, and we do. Especially in neuroscience so sign up because you're highly needed right now
0: definitely if you're interested in computers and maybe tangentially interested in biology please take a look at the field
1: we need all hands on deck machine learning i mean you can get your husband i know
0: my husband is getting his master's in machine learning so i'm telling him someday we're going to be the the power couple
1: (laughs) If he does a good enough job he can come work for you
0: i know seriously (laughs) Is that nepotism? I'm sure,
1: Definitely. Pre- I'm sure he'll appreciate you telling him to come work for you if I, he does a good enough job.
0: I am pretty sure I've already said something along those lines. You know I don't hold back.
1: Oh, poor Ben. Oh my God. He got us back when he made that guacamole during last week's episode. Yeah, I know. But anyway. But
0: he's a sweetheart and a really good cook. So thank you, Ben, for the guacamole.
1: <laughs> so, Megan, what are we talking about today?
0: So we're talking about Rita levi Montalcini, who I am really excited about. I was really pumped to do this research. I heard about her first, I think, four or five years ago, and I was just immediately inspired by her story. I've really hyped this up to Jamal over the past couple weeks, so I hope I don't let you down. But I'm excited. I think she's a really interesting lady, and there's a lot to
1: talk about, so it might be long. And so I'm going to kind of sit back and... Yeah, enjoy enjoy uh, the story. Yeah, enjoy the story. I Mm -hmm. do have some context of the time this happened and some events that might have derailed her. Mm. And I do have some historical input because that's what I like to do. Yeah. maybe I'll make some contribution. Other than that, I'll just be asking you a bunch of questions.
0: Hey, that's fine. I'm ready for it. Okay, so Rita Levi Montalcini, another three-name person, like three initials, RLM which I am also a three-name person, so I love it. I feel like it makes you a little bit fancier. Really? You know, when you have that hyphenated last name, you sound legit. That's why I hyphenated
2: my last name. I hear you.
0: (laughs) So, RLM was born April 22nd, 1909 to a painter, Adele Montalcini, and an engineer, Adama Levi. So her last names are not from marriage, actually. They're oh. from her parents' marriage. I was so excited to find that out because my mom is a painter and my dad is an engineer. Really? And I was like,
1: what? And you have a hyphenated last name.
0: And I, yes!
1: You're the reincarnation. Oh of my RL. gosh.
0: No way. She's way cooler than I am.
1: Yeah, especially in this, what is this, like a Time Magazine article or something? Oh where my she's gosh,
0: like, this picture? Yeah. Yeah, you guys got to check out these pictures of her. We'll, she,
1: we'll post it on the website, yeah. an article page about... She's straight
0: posing, like a 100 years old, and she looks like a fashion model. Like a boss. Yeah. Yeah, she's amazing. So she was born in Turin, Italy, or Torino. Both of her parents moved there from elsewhere in Italy and were Sephardi Jews, which is a Jewish ethnic group originating in the Iberian Peninsula. Do you know where that is? No. It is Spain and Portugal. Okay. So these, this group of people are Jewish, but originally came from that area of the world. So in Spain, I learned a lot about this when I studied abroad there. It used to be known as an area where people of all different religions coexisted and had a great relationship, and it was really tolerant and vibrant and diverse. And Toledo, Toledo, Spain, is actually known as the city of three cultures, Islamic, Jewish, and Christian. But in the 1490s, um, Fernando and Isabella, the uh, monarchs of Spain and Portugal, Forced a diaspora of all of the Jews and Muslims. These are the same people who sent Christopher Columbus on his okay, journeys. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> with Columbus Day coming up, we um, are not are not big fans of them. Yeah,
1: Columbus Day. What's that?
0: Uh, Indigenous Peoples Day.
1: Oh. Yeah, mm. Hmm. Exactly.
0: Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. That random guy. No yeah. one's heard of. Him. I don't acknowledge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a good idea.
1: Yeah, I mean, his his uh, statues can go in the same graveyard is uh j Merriam's
0: yeah place. seriously yeah can we just pile all of these old statues of like sims and columbus and all the confederate generals they can all just be piled into one giant
1: furnace <laughs> just put them in a furnace a furnace yeah exactly recycle the material yeah that would that. be perfect yeah and form new sculptures of people who should be celebrating
0: yes why are we not doing this that's
1: that's a that's very economical we should Reclaim
0: that. the sculptures,
1: yeah. Ooh, I like that spinoff podcast coming soon, yes. 2021. <laughs> Stay
0: tuned. Okay, so back to the 1490s. So they had this forced diaspora, all of the Jewish and Muslim people had to either leave or convert to Christianity. It wasn't until 2015, actually, that Spain and Portugal acknowledged this history and allowed Sephardi Jews or people descended from this group to apply for citizenship in Spain and Portugal. So this is a pretty small group of people, but they've had a pretty big impact on European culture and history. When they were forced out of Spain, some of them moved to Italy, and that's where RLM can trace her heritage back to. So... In her early years, so this is like the 1910s, 1920s, she was a big, a huge reader, and she admired the Swedish writer Selma Lagerlof, who was actually the first woman to win a Nobel Prize in Literature in 1909, the year Rita was born. So it's kind of some cool foreshadowing. You'll see. You'll find out. And then when she was a little bit older, her close family friend died of stomach cancer, And this was a really inspirational time for her when she decided to pursue medicine. When she brought this up to her family, her father was not supportive. He said that it would take away from her duties as a wife and mother and really didn't want her to go to medical school. But eventually, although she was scared of standing up to her father, she did, and he eventually agreed to support her. And joke's on him, because she never did marry or had children, so... Wow. I guess it did interfere with her duties, but... Uh,
1: Maybe the pressure and the circumstances she was under just made her really aversive to wanting to be a housewife or something like that. Oh, yeah.
0: I think she had to work really hard to prove herself.
1: And this is in Italy, right? Yeah. Not to mention the, you know, reign of uh, Benito Mussolini that would come,
0: right? Oh, but. It, it factors in prominently into the story. Yeah. So here we are in the 1930s. She goes to the University of Turin Medical School. And she graduated with her MD, summa cum laude, in 1936 at the age of 27. So she's doing pretty great. And during this time, her interest in neuroscience was sparked by Giuseppe Levi, who was a neurohistologist. So someone who looks at images of the brain. You can use different compounds and dyes to make different structures stand out in tissue, and that's called histology. So he was doing this specifically in the brain. After her MD, she remained as Giuseppe Levi's assistant.
1: And they never got married. When I did do some brief like reading up on her, Mm -hmm. I actually didn't take a deep dive because I wanted to be taught about her today. (laughs) But I just assume, actually, until now that mm-hmm. um, she married the guy that she yeah. worked under. No. Even though his name would have come last if that was the case. right? Yeah, I yeah.
0: I don't think that... I never saw anything about revelation. I think it was just a coincidence that they had the same last name. Wow. They definitely weren't married.
1: So maybe it's just a really popular Italian.
0: I think it's a Jewish name. But, yeah, it could be pretty common among the... Italian-Jewish community. Yeah, so Levi was also Jewish, and he was a very outspoken anti-fascist. So, like you were saying, this was Mussolini's reign. So, during her time with um, Giuseppe Levi, she learned silver staining. Have you heard of silver staining? Or you probably know the other word for it, Golgi staining? Golgi staining, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, so it's a pretty, one of the oldest techniques in neuroscience that's still used that's still today. That's right now. Yeah, yeah. mm-hmm. So it was developed by Camillo Golgi in the late 19th century, so more than 100 years ago. And then it was later refined by Santiago Ramon y Cajal. These two men actually had a, a big rivalry. <laughs> um, that's pretty legendary in neuroscience history. But if we got into that, it would take all day. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so it is using a silver-containing dye to pick out every single part of the neuron. So it stains only a few neurons in the tissue section, but within that neuron, every detail is illuminated. So from the dendrite to the soma to the axons, you can pretty much see the entire cell in all of its glory.
1: Yeah, if you Google Golgi staining, Mm -hmm. you'll see but hundreds or thousands of pictures yeah. come up, and you can see the beauty and yeah,
0: they're really uh, impressive. So now we get to Mussolini. So you did a little bit of research on
1: this. Yeah, so you know what I remember about you know this time period and Benito Mussolini's reign, mm-hmm. I looked into it a little bit because Levi Montalcini was um, Italian Jewish, right? Yeah. Jewish Italian, mm-hmm. and so I wanted to see like how living in Italy at this time impacted her life. So actually, okay, Mussolini is most known for sort of pioneering fascism. Um, Fascism really didn't take place until like 1922, which Mm -hmm. was when Mussolini became prime minister and dictator of Italy. Um, But um, Adolf Hitler actually looked up to Mussolini. uh, And he was inspired by the way he ran his country and just fascism. um, But he wanted to do it to a greater level. So oh actually, gosh. when Hitler took reign, he had his own thoughts about fascism and nationalism mm-hmm. and what he wanted to achieve, which was somewhat more biological. Although Italy would eventually adopt laws and regulations that would prevent Jewish people from mm-hmm. becoming professionals and would the, declare them as being as not being citizens in mm-hmm. the country, um, he never had such perspective. He actually didn't pay attention to Hitler at all and thought he was kind of a joke in somewhat, and really didn't agree with his opinions. Hmm. But because of their relationship, he did adopt a lot of that uh, behavior over time, even though he didn't think it was any biological merit to it. There was, what was it called? The Manifesto of Race. Yeah. yeah it 1938. Was like 1930, yeah, 1938. Mm-hmm. And after that was passed, regardless of what his thoughts was about superior race and yeah. such things like that, he enforced these laws that mm-hmm. prevented people like, uh, Mussolini from being able to navigate through the country without such resistance. Benito M- Mussolini's sort of response to Hitler's reign and his growth in power actually got Italy raided by Germany because yeah. he decided to begin to pull back. So mm-hmm. it was a sort of vicious cycle of fascists mm-hmm. trying to uh, conquer the world. And this kind of relates to modern day, too. I mean, I think it's important to kind of know some of these terms because I do know that people often group terms like communism and socialism together which is mm-hmm. probably pretty close mm-hmm. but they also group in those terms with fascism right yeah but they're actually they're not polar opposites but they're but they do oppose each other yeah, yeah pretty um, severely and it's important to kind of recognize these behaviors because i'm in no position to call trump a fascist but I would say that people have said that he has fascist-like behavior. Yes. And the reason why is because actually fascism is um, a type of government or ruling where the focus and the economic contributions and the whole movement and direction of the country is to protect the country itself, Mm -hmm. which is really a government of just a few elites. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. So... It's much different from communism, which is like a redistribution of wealth. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the tenets of fascism, too, is that government has a strong role in protecting corporations versus individual people.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the way I always thought about it was, like, if you think about a co-op, right, Um, like, let's say a grocery store Mm co-op. We have one of those in Buffalo. It's owned and run by the people. So the, the wealth is distributed evenly in these type of conditions. And if someone's a manager or let's say they do additional work like bookkeeping, they'll get paid more for their services, but there's really no elite. So Mm -hmm. that's like communism or socialism Mm -hmm. can be like analogous to that. Fascism would be more analogous to like a corporate grocery store where they need individuals to participate, Mm -hmm. but all the economics and all the resources are only for those like Executives. Yeah. Right. That's a good
2: analogy. Yeah.
1: So that's like a huge difference. And people have called Trump a fascist because his behaviors and being really like permissive and trying to conquer, well, trying to win different trade wars and Mm -hmm. really squeeze other countries and try to make this country the most powerful and then actually taken after other countries by You know, remember he talked about having, like, a military parade? Yeah. Yeah, so, like, really, like— Which makes you
0: think of North Korea or something. Yeah,
1: yeah, so, like, you know, that's kind of a sign, too. It's, like, flexing, like, how strong the military is Mm -hmm. and how you can take over anything and and really just giving power and money to a small, elite group of people, Mm -hmm. um, which is not what our country was founded on. Yeah. And it's not what we want for this country.
0: I think this episode comes out a few days before the election. So please, please, voting is really important. I know it's not everything, but it's a lot right now. We really need to vote.
1: Yeah, that's our PSA.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Get out and vote. Yes.
0: And tell everyone else to. Like I said, it's not everything and we have a lot more to do to work on what's happening in this country, but it's still necessary. Yeah, so this manifesto of race that you mentioned in nineteen thirty eight from Mussolini, it stripped Jews of citizenship, property rights, and all professional positions government, education, banking. So this included Rita and it also included Giuseppe Levi. Mussolini himself, like you said, Jamal, did not actually have his own explicitly racist or anti Semitic views until his allyship with Hitler and the Nazi Party. At this point, he began to encourage racism against Jewish and African people because Italians were considered part of the Aryan race. This actually wasn't supported by most Italians, which sounds really familiar to what's happening today in the U.S. Most Americans don't support our treatment of non-white people, but we have this very loud minority who... Does proclaim these racist views, including the people at the highest levels of government, and that's what ends up happening. So, there was actually this heartbreaking quote of Mussolini's that I found criticizing anti Semitism. On one occasion, a fascist scholar questioned Mussolini over the tra- treatment of his Jewish friends, which prompted Mussolini to say, I agree with you entirely. I don't believe a bit in the stupid anti-Semitic theory. I am carrying out my policy entirely for political reasons. So it just really got to me because he didn't even believe in it. Like he was just willing to destroy millions of lives, send people to their death, uproot them from their homes and their businesses and their jobs and their communities just for his own political gain.
1: Again, fascism, right? Yes. Like just keeping the power mm-hmm.
2: at the top,
1: and I said it's very permissive, right? It's just, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's an aggressive sort of infectious mindset that hey, yeah. I don't really have an opinion about this, but if it's going to keep my alliances strong mm-hmm. and keep my power strong, then I'm going to do it. So you know, not standing on his own two feet was a eventually part of his demise, and really the demise of fascist Italy, which is not a fascist country now, by the way. It wasn't, you know, after, like, what, 1948 or something. like. But it did have this sort of couple-decade reign of Mm -hmm. that type of behavior.
0: It's very terrifying to see the parallels of fascism today. Well, so to get back to Rita, though, so in 1938, when this happened, she lost her job. She had to go into hiding. But... She was not going to let that stop her from working. So she was pretty inspired, actually, by Santiago Ramon y Cajal, who I mentioned earlier as one of the main figures in early neuroscience. He worked alone at, like, his homemade lab in Valencia, Spain, in the late nineteenth century, and she kind of considered him as a role model and was inspired by that way of just like uh-huh. having a homemade lab. Yeah. So. She set up a lab in her bedroom while she was in hiding to study the growth of nerves in chicken embryos. So she's like, knowing that people on the outside want her dead, and that she's in hiding from literally being sent to be tortured and killed. And she's just like, I got to pursue the science. I got to get my chicken eggs and study them and look at the nerves. Like, she was just so passionate about it. And she didn't let what was going on outside, stop her from pursuing this.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you see the the trend here from episode two, three, now? Yeah. When your back is against mm-hmm. the wall, like these really dedicated and ambitious people mm-hmm. like, did not allow these conditions, their race, or yes. how they're mistreated to define them. From Rebecca Lee Crumpler to last episode with Dr. Charles Drew mm-hmm. and Levi Montecini. Yeah, I mean, that is resilience. Like, Yes. Yeah, I think we're also kind of learning something doing this research right Absolutely.
0: Now. I'm so inspired by all of these doctors, scientists. They're amazing. I'm like, man, what am I doing? <laughs> Watching the mice run in circles.
1: <laughs> the <laughs> grit, though, the grit yes. that these individuals have. And none of them, to my understanding, unless I'm wrong about Levi Montecini, had like these really, were like childhood prodigies, right? Like yeah. we hear about when we talked about Maybe episode one, or mm-hmm. how science isn't necessarily just you know a lot of people who are just like prodigies yeah. that make these discoveries. Like these individuals just decided that this is something they wanted to do and yeah. let anything stop them from doing it.
0: Yeah, exactly. Like we don't know much about her childhood, but she had to kind of fight her dad just to be able to go to med school. So yeah, this was something she wanted to do, and like you said, she was
1: going to do it. But can you imagine her being married? Um, oh my gosh with the chicken eggs in the bedroom yeah Yeah. seriously
0: she actually said about never getting married she was like even with two successful people one may come to resent the other so
2: Mm. that's
0: part of the reason why she never got married wow but she was she also said she was just really satisfied with her work and she just enjoyed being around her colleagues and she didn't mind being single
1: that's actually a really good point, because mm-hmm. even Einstein's first wife was actually a scholar in physics and oh. contributed a lot to his theory of relativity. I didn't know that. Yeah, and she she was very, very, very smart, mm-hmm. and it was like this power struggle, you know, yeah. between the two of them, and mm-hmm. she ended up being a stay-at-home wife and doing a lot of her physics at home mm-hmm. and contributing to a lot of his, his work, and then... When he got tired of that relationship he just like up and left. Oh my I think he like started talking to her like her sister or something like that. Yeah, or, or something.
2: Einstein, jerk.
1: Yeah. And he's like, Listen, I'm gonna win this Nobel Prize probably and I'll just give you the money if you just leave me alone. Really? Yeah. So anyway, that's an aside. What a shame. But the point is yeah what she said sort of makes sense yeah. you know like mm-hmm. especially in this time period yes you know if if her husband was half as good as she was maybe he would have would have overshadowed her or something like that
0: absolutely that was definitely a concern for women scientists and all sorts of women professionals at this time but especially science because it was very easy it still is very easy for someone else that you're working with to take credit for your own ideas and discoveries definitely yeah and especially when like at this time they were going to trust the man's word over the woman's
2: so
0: i'm sure that factored into her choices So the science that she was interested in at this time was inspired by this paper she read published in 1934 by Victor Hamburger, who was working in the United States. He noticed that removing the growing limbs in a chick embryo reduced the size of the bundle of nerve cells that normally comes out of the spinal cord. So that's called a ganglion, this bundle of nerves that groups together before it travels out to your limbs from the spinal cord. So the fact that removing the limb before the nerves had the potential to grow into it caused them to become smaller and die off entirely, he thought that that meant there must be some, something had to be signaling those cells to grow towards the limb under the normal circumstance. But he was using just a normal light microscope, and he couldn't see the structures of the nerves well enough to see what was going on. So Rita reads this, and she's like, ooh, I know this technique. I know the silver staining technique mm-hmm. that can help me see all the little details of the neurons that he's not catching. And a quick aside, actually, so a neuron is an individual cell that is part of the nervous system, and you have neurons in your brain and throughout your body. But a nerve is a bundle of all of these individual neurons that's traveling out through your system, out of the spinal cord, into your body to help you with movement, and then from your body back to the spinal cord, back to the brain for all of your sensory perception. So this paper was just inspiring to her because she was fascinated by the question of how does one fertilized egg cell become billions of individual cells in any sort of living complex being? And all of these cells have hundreds of special functions. So specifically, she's wondering, how do these neurons know to grow towards the wing or the leg that they're supposed to be um, growing into? So, she used her silver staining technique, as I said, and because she was in her bedroom, she didn't have all of her nice laboratory tools, so she actually made her little scalpels and spatulas out of sewing needles that she had at home. Wow. Yeah. Oh <laughs> so, she's just like, literally was buying the eggs from a farm. I read that she would ride her bike down the road to a farm get these fertilized chicken eggs, bring them home. And then she's just got these tiny little sewing needles that she's using to pull apart the microscopic arms, wings, wings and legs of the chick embryo.
1: Wow. Just improvised. And who's supporting this research? If Nobody. She, if she's in hiding, she's probably <laughs> yeah. be using her savings or Yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm.
0: Her family was fairly well off as a child. So she did have an advantage there. So that certainly helped with her success in life, but yeah, like no one's paying her to do this research. She's just doing it it's out of her like own the interest.
1: NIH yeah, or, no, or, she did not have really, an
0: NIH grant uh, mm-hmm.
1: supporting this research.
0: Definitely not. So when she began to look at this with her silver staining, she realized that the neurons began to grow towards the limb or where the limb should have been, but they died before they reached their would-be target. So she thought it must be some growth factor released from the limb. During this time, she also was forced to flee again because, as you mentioned before, the Italians kind of switched sides. They actually switched to the Allied side. So in 1943, Germany invaded Italy. And so that forced her family to flee further south to Florence. When Rita Levi-Montalcini and her family were living in Florence, they were living with family friends. This time, she set up her laboratory in the corner of their shared living space Which, when I read that, I was like, that actually sounds really familiar. Like, COVID, I'm thinking about all these families where people just, like, one kid's in the living room, one kid's in the dining room, one parent's in the bedroom, one parent's in the kitchen. Like, everyone's got their own little workspace in their home. So, we can actually kind of relate to this. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. I can relate to it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've worked in some strange places since March.
1: Yeah, tell me about it. (laughs)
0: So, yeah, she set up her her space again, despite having to flee from an invading army that hated her for who she was. And she's like, all right, time to go get some more eggs and keep going with my work.
1: Um, she probably had a nice little basket yeah
0: (laughs) i know it sounds so idyllic until you think about the fact that it's literally like italy in world war ii yeah i know so in 1944 florence was liberated and remember she's a medical doctor so she used her medical skills at this point for injured soldiers coming home from war so she was like out there helping out with the war effort she wasn't gonna if there was anything she could do outside of the home she was ready to do it And just a theme throughout her life is that she's really always ready to take that next step and to do something more for both her own career, for the scientific field, and for other people. World War II ends in 1945, and Rita returns to Turin, where she was from. But at this point, she is in her 30s, and she felt like she'd pretty much outgrown her position as an assistant in Giuseppe Levi's lab. Actually, during the war, he had come to her bedroom laboratory to assist her on some of the experiments that she'd come up with. So she's like, I'm not going to be your assistant anymore. I need to move on to something new. Yeah. So remember that guy, Victor Hamburger, whose paper she read?
2: How could I forget? How could you
0: forget? So in 1946, he actually read a paper that she published and he called her up and he's like, hey, do you want to come to the U.S. for one semester to work with me? And wow. she's like, sure. So this was in Washington University in St. Louis in Missouri. So it was supposed to just be that one semester. And during that time, a grad student, so someone like us, okay. you know, yeah. named Elmer Buker, it's quite a name, wanted to see if other tissue, not just these limb buds, could also attract nerves to grow towards it. So he dissected out a piece of a mouse sarcoma, a tumor, and put placed it into the chicken embryo and found that the nerves grew towards it even more rapidly than than towards a limb bud. And it was kind of this like crazy mess of nerves all growing around the tumor. It was kinda just random and wild. So this Got them thinking is the tumor releasing these magical factors that they, they didn't know what was going yeah. on, but they were like, the tumor must be releasing this too. And if so, it's probably traveling through the blood supply.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So, Rita then had the idea to place the tumor outside of the yolk sac. So, it's not directly on the mouse embryo, but it shares a blood supply with the embryo.
2: Yeah.
0: And she found that this also caused excessive nerve growth inside the embryo. So something...
1: It must be permeating through.
0: Yes. Something's coming from the tumor and permeating through the blood supply into the embryo.
1: So it must be some small... Um, what was that word we used earlier? Biological, biological molecule. Biological molecule. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably not a big protein. Yeah. Right, I'm just thinking what would the Mm-hmm. I thought it was at that time.
0: I know. I, well, so the really interesting thing actually is that this thought that there was some actual traveling factor that was causing nerves to grow, the scientific community really didn't believe it. They were super skeptical of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now we know that there are tons of signals traveling throughout your body all the time yeah. between cells, through the blood supply, in local areas, in distant areas. That's a very well-accepted fact. But at this time, they didn't think that there were just things kind of diffusing around and causing changes in the other cells. So they were pretty skeptical. So Rita really had to work hard to prove this. So at the end of this semester, she realized that it would be easier if she could isolate the nerve cells in culture. And to learn that, she knew a colleague in Rio de Janeiro who was a... Former student of Giuseppe Levi's as well. So she literally took two of the mice that they were using that had like the tumors that they wanted to use, put them in her purse. She's just carrying these mice, the mice. on her
2: purse. Okay.
0: And took went on a plane from Missouri to Brazil with two
1: Research mice in her purse. Shout out, welcome to June. (laughs) One of our yeah,
0: one of our (laughs) colleagues. Um, Yeah, it's just like yes, she would Mm
1: -hmm. definitely do that.
0: Yeah, so it's just crazy. I mean, now you have to fill out so much paperwork to do anything with the mice. Not
1: having mice. Oh no, carried in person. Yeah,
0: no, no, no. Even now, you have to fill out like tons of paperwork just to move a mouse from our building to one of the other research buildings across the street on our medical campus. Yes. Like, one of my friends was trying to do that, and he was like, you can't believe how much of a headache it is to just, like, carry a mouse across the
1: street. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and for those out there listening that, um, I mean, there's going to be people who oppose animal research regardless that yeah. you probably can't convince you of, But for others who are sort of on the fence about the use of animals, there is a governing body that's very... Very, very strict. I mean, we work with controlled substances, and sometimes mm-hmm. the DEA has to come and check our cabinets and make sure everything is by protocol. But we're most scared of IU because mm-hmm. even just accidentally not filling out paperwork or the mishandling of laboratory animals could result in us being shut down yeah. for a half a year, an entire year. Mm-hmm. And so this governing agency is very strict on how we treat animals. Yeah how we cage the animals, uh, how they, you know, interact with each other, how much Mm -hmm. food we give them, and even animals that's being used for experimentation where they may suffer some, like, uncomfortable position Mm -hmm. or something like that. They still are treated with care. Like, if they have any other underlying illnesses, Mm -hmm. then we have vets on staff. Yeah, they're, like,
0: checking on them multiple times a
1: week. Yeah, so this is a this is a really thorough process in making sure that these animals have the best quality, quality of life that they can while also being an, an amazing uh, resource for us to do our, our research. Yes. Yeah, that's a great point.
0: Yeah, but I don't think it the IACUC or whoever was controlling things back then probably didn't have so much... I don't think people cared so much about the ethics of animal
1: research. Probably, I mean...
0: In the Even 1950s.
1: research.
0: Well, yeah. 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 So, <laughs> so they definitely didn't care about animal yeah, ethics.
1: We'll, yeah, We'll <laughs> cover more
0: of those stories in a few Yeah, stay tuned. So anyway, she went to Rio with these mice in her purse, and learning to culture the individual nerve cells helped her to just further confirm her experiments that some factor was coming from the tumor and causing the nerves to grow towards it. And so after she was able to duplicate these experiments that she'd originally performed in her bedroom in Victor Hamburger's lab, she was offered a research associate position when she got back to St. Louis. So what turned into one semester, she actually ended up staying there for like 30 years. So it's pretty awesome.
1: Oh no, she stayed where for 30 years?
0: Uh, St. Louis, Washington University in St. Louis. Really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He was like, "I'll oh, just come for one semester and learn some techniques. And then he offered her position and she ended up staying there.
1: So her major work that we're going to discuss probably shortly, right, Mm -hmm. was conducted in the U.S., not in Italy.
0: Yes, that's correct.
1: Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. But she did
0: spend her time between both countries. Okay. So the major work that she's most well-recognized for was done in the 1950s, starting in 1952. So as always, she used chicken embryos. This was her model system of choice. After she transplanted the tumor, she noticed that the nerves growing from the chick embryo all grew around the tumor in what she called a halo. And she described it as rivulets of water flowing steadily over a bed of stones. And it would take over the space of most of the other tissues. Like the nerves would just kind of invade into everything. The tumor was causing this to happen. But the only place that she found the nerves were not growing into was into arteries. So do you know the difference between an artery and a vein?
1: Um, it's direction, right? Mhm. So let me see. It's, it's I have a 50/50 chance here. <laughs> yeah. Arteries bring blood to the heart, and veins bring them away? No. Is it the opposite? <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: I mean, hold on. Arteries <laughs> take blood pump blood out the heart mm-hmm. the veins bring blood to the heart.
0: wow how did you get that on that's your what I meant to say second try <laughs> out of two <laughs> amazing <laughs> yeah so let me describe this a little better so you have the chicken embryo and it has a rudimentary heart so the arteries are carrying blood away from the chickens the baby chicks heart and then a tumor is transplanted elsewhere in the embryo. So blood is flowing into the tumor from the chick's heart. And then once the blood is depleted of the oxygen, blood will flow back to the heart via veins. So if anything is being released from the tumor, it's going to be very concentrated in the veins, which are flowing away from the tumor Mm -hmm. versus the arteries, which are flowing into it. So this was further evidence Uh. that there's something being transmitted through the blood supply. From things like tumors that is causing nerve growth okay like I said that people were super skeptical about this it kind of seemed like magic to scientists at the time and and it didn't help that she said this factor is also present in mouse saliva cells and in snake venom scientists were just like how is this magical factor being found everywhere yeah. like it, it sounded too good to be true yeah so in 1959 this is when she was actually able to isolate this factor. And you know what this factor is? I think we talked about it
1: before. Nerve growth factor.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I think it's something that maybe all neuroscientists know.
2: Probably. No,
1: right? Yeah. Or should know.
2: It's, it's pretty
0: important. I mean, yeah, it's literally what causes the main factor that causes nerves to grow in the correct direction. Or the incorrect direction if you have a tumor.
1: yeah it's crucial for the survival Mm -hmm. of neurons to begin with. Yes, yes. Without NGF, Mm -hmm. neurons can't survive.
0: Yeah, and that's what Rita observed when she saw that those neurons were dying off when she removed the limb bud, which was the source of NGF.
1: Yeah, and so actually, in general, cell any type of cell, including neurons, which... Some people call it nerve cells. You kind of mm-hmm. explained all of that yeah. earlier. But neurons, mm-hmm. so, you know, for people listening, that's what we call, that's what we're going to call them. Yeah. Um, they're not exempt from that. If a cell doesn't have a clear direction or instruction to do its job, it mm-hmm. undergoes a process called apoptosis, mm-hmm. which is when other signals in a cell make the cell die or turn the cell off and the cell dies. This is important because I study neurodegenerative disorders, mm-hmm. right? And I think NGF in some places that were experimented on in targeting some of those d- diseases like yeah. multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. because it's you mentioned that it can travel, right? Yes. So it's not a, a big bulky protein traveling yeah. through the bloodstream. It's a small peptide mm-hmm. sequence so still made up like a protein. Yeah. It's a very small protein and I think they use it therapeutically to try to prevent neurons from diet, hence neurodegeneration. Um, So this was a very important contribution, Mm -hmm. although I don't work on it specifically. It's something that I also learned about in my neuroscience training.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Rita was working up until the early 2000s. So she actually was a key player in realizing that this could be useful for neurodegenerative diseases.
1: Yeah, I, I have no idea who Made this discovery either, mm-hmm. actually.
0: Well, now you do.
1: Now, yeah, now I do. <laughs> I feel like it's worthy of some grand prize in science. You know, yeah. To discover this, mm-hmm. you know, she she should be rewarded for that.
0: It, she was. She so was. luckily, this is one of those people who did get recognized. But you I, can tell I still us think about that later? I will tell you about that later. Okay. I still think she needs more recognition. Okay. So. So 1959, like I was saying, she was able to isolate this nerve growth factor, prove that it existed using anti-serum, which to me sounds fake. It sounds like something you put in like a witch's brew or like a Harry Potter poison or something.
1: Yeah, like a Spider-Man. Yeah, Yeah.
0: anti-serum. (laughs)
1: Anti-serum.
0: So it's basically like blood serum that contains antibodies, which we talked about last week with Charles Drew. Yes. So these are, these bind specific proteins and are used in our immune system to identify and isolate invaders but it's also used in science because these antibodies can bind to proteins you're interested in. In this case, they used these antibodies to bind to nerve growth factors so that it wasn't able to accomplish its normal function. So what they did, when they added this to the mix of nerve cells and tumor, that wild mass of nerves that they had observed before disappeared. The tumor didn't cause the nerves to grow out anymore because they had put in the, these antibodies to nerve growth factor. So they were able to show, okay, when you bind to this factor and isolate it from the system, the nerves can no longer grow. And that's how they proved its existence. Wow. Uh, yeah.
1: So where was this landmark study published at?
0: So I believe that this finding specifically was published in PNAS, which is a well-known or a, a very prestigious journal called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, you have to be a member, actually, of the National Academy of Sciences to publish a paper. So
1: yeah. so was she a member of the National Academy of Sciences?
0: She was. And she was actually the 10th woman elected to the National Academy of Sciences.
1: Wow.
2: Which is wow. pretty low. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, there exactly. were not a
0: lot before. My goodness. <laughs> In the 1960s, so not that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, so this paper was her her big landmark study, and then the skepticism disappeared pretty much entirely when one of her students in 1971 was able to describe the structure of the protein using one of the first automated protein sequencers, and the student's name was Ruth Hoag Angoletti, and Angoletti describes her mentor, uh, Dr. Levi Montalcini, as relentless. She says she would call before 7 a.m. or really late at night to discuss experiments, Hmm. which I think sounds familiar to Hmm. many grad students. Yeah, sounds very familiar. (laughs) Yeah. But she says it was inspiring rather than brutal. Her quote is, I realized how lucky I was to work with someone so brilliant, expansive, and generous of spirit. So even if she's calling her at these crazy hours, at least she says that it was inspiring. (laughs) So beginning in the 1960s, like I said, Dr. Levi Montalcini began splitting her time between the U.S. and Italy. She established a second lab in Rome and then directed a series of institutes there. In 1979, she technically retired at the age of 70, but I still have a lot of notes, so she did quite a bit after her retirement. (laughs) In the 1990s, she helped discover the importance of a certain cell called a mast cell in releasing nerve growth factor. These are the cells that mediate um, allergic reactions or any sort of hypersensitivity, like if you have hives or any sort of skin reaction to something that you're allergic to.
1: A mast cell?
0: M-A-S-T.
1: Oh, mast cell. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mast cell.
0: Mast cell. Okay. <laughs> and she also identified a compound which modulates these cells. And this has really helped in understanding the endocannabinoid system and is is being looked at as a potentially beneficial compound. And remember, this is like more than two decades after she supposedly retired and she's just discovering another molecule. And like, yeah. it's just crazy.
1: <laughs> the godmother of endocannabinoid research.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so do you know anything about endocannabinoid system? I think it's kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, I really don't know too much about mm-hmm. it. I know that there's like two endogenous cannabinoid receptors. Yeah. Or like, what is it like C one, C two, something like that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I don't know too much about like the mechanism mm-hmm. and like exactly how much we know about it to begin with.
0: Yeah, I didn't. I don't know too much about the mechanism either, honestly. But I think it's something that's really being studied a lot right now because it seems like people are always discovering more roles for this endocannabinoid system. So if you've never heard of it. It's related to cannabis, weed. So a good way to think about it is if we didn't have any way for certain compounds to react in our body, it wouldn't cause any sort of effect. So like catnip causes this hallucinogenic reaction in cats, Mm -hmm. but not in humans because we don't have the same receptors for the compound present in catnip that cause hallucinations in cats. Also, side note, like what are cats hallucinating about? That's what I wonder. That
1: is, yeah. (laughs) That would be interesting. Yeah. Can we
0: do a study on that?
1: Yeah, I would like to see that.
0: One of my friends gave me a spider plant and then my cat ate the whole spider plant and I looked up why she did that and apparently it gets them really high and makes them hallucinate and I was like, do I really want to know what
1: she saw? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's a good point, though. Are there any endogenous binding molecules for endocannabinoid receptors?
0: Yeah, so there are endogenous molecules, but they're not quite as... And endogenous, by the way, means like native to the human body, things that you produce naturally, versus the two main compounds in cannabis, which are CBD and THC, cannabidiol and tetrahydrocannabinol. (laughs) That was too many syllables. Yeah, I was just uh, looking this up yesterday at work, and um, oh yeah, you know. So THC binds very strongly to the receptor that triggers the typical symptoms of being high, like euphoria. But they're actually very similar in molecular structure, and CBD is more like calming and relaxing. Doesn't cause the same reaction of being high as THC as THC right so yeah.
1: they, they bind to the same receptors
0: yes but THC binds more strongly to the receptor that makes you feel high
1: versus the therapeutic effect of CBD mm-hmm. hmm, so if you just smoke weed mm-hmm. then THC is probably what is it a competitive agonist probably for these cannabinoid receptors? Yeah, yeah. So you're probably not getting a therapeutic effect at all. Yes, the you're THC binds hot. more strongly. Yeah. Ah, so so that's why
0: people are promoting CBD
1: oh, as so like just the therapeutic side. Yeah. And, okay.
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: So this endocannabinoid system in normal conditions when you're not using THC or CBD still has binding proteins that are released normally. And they're involved in cognition, mood, development, inflammation, etc. So they're actually being looked at as treatments for various disorders like seizures. So Miss Rita contributed to this as well.
2: Wow!
0: <laughs> yeah. And then in 2002, she founded the European Brain Institute. So at this point, she's 90, uh, 93. Wow. and she just founds this founds founds this institute and served as the president. And at the European Brain Institute, they mainly study Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So this ties in directly to what you were saying before about NGF being used as treatment for neurodegenerative diseases. And it's useful for getting many great scientists together throughout Europe. This was kind of her dream was to gather all of these fantastic scientists and get these great minds in one place to work on these problems in Italy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's amazing. And Mm -hmm. I bet people probably were like, when she's found in it, they're probably like, she might not make it to the end of it. I know. She's like, surprised. I still got at least a decade left in me. So (laughs) just calm down. (laughs) I'll be here for a while. Seriously. What was she eating? Was it like her Italian diet or something? Must be. I need to figure out what this is. Right? To prolong my life. Oh my gosh, me too. Even her being born, was she born in 1909? Yeah. Okay, like even now, like in 2020, mm-hmm. the average life expectancy is 77 yeah. in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what, what was she doing? Low carb or something? like I don't know. I guess.
0: Yeah. Working hard? I don't know.
1: When we find out, we'll post it <laughs> yeah, on the Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah, so in 2009, when she's 100, she's still working at the Brain Institute to see how far back NGF went in evolution. A hundred years old, and she's oh. still like sharp as a tack yeah. doing her research.
2: Oh, my goodness.
0: So she wasn't perfect. There was some criticism of her. And I feel like when you live to be that old and you're a public figure, that's probably going to happen to most people. But in...
1: I'm in suspense right now. I have no idea.
0: I know, right?
1: What does she do? <laughs> What's
0: So the way I see it, is she seems to be someone who thought her way was best, which seems to be a fairly common trait among scientists who had to work really hard to get where they are. And you can't really blame her, you know. Like she faced skepticism throughout her life. She had to claw her way to the top. She was Jewish. She was a woman. People didn't want to believe what she was doing. They didn't want to um, accept her as a real scientist in the beginning. So she did not like when other scientists started moving into the growth factor field. When newcomers to the field were talking about their findings at conferences, she would sometimes talk over them to answer the questions as they're presenting their findings. But one of the scientists in the field, one of the more junior scientists, defends her because he really explains, yeah, her whole career was spent fighting skepticism and she didn't want anyone to derail that process. Yeah. She wanted to make sure everything was clarified and no one was messing up her, her legacy because that was really important, like the contributions that she had made. And she was really passionate about that. And in the 1980s, in her 70s, she began to make peace with the other scientists once she realized, OK, my discoveries are, discoveries are really being accepted. It's OK. Like, it's OK for new people to come to the field. So her view on those things did change. And at another point, she almost fired the entire board of her Brain Institute, who had helped create it with her because of personal fallings out, and that could have ruined her entire institute. So it seems like she was just someone who liked to do it her way.
1: (laughs) That's it? That that was... That's all the criticism? So there's a couple of other things. I mean, for one, that picture I've seen of her with her arms crossed, yeah, with that, like... Fuchsia color sweater, yes. Whatever. I can just imagine her at the conference, like,
0: <laughs> I think she's really small, too. Yeah, she was, was like, bro, Yeah, <laughs> just
1: talking over people, but yeah, I mean, and she almost fired her entire staff. yeah, but didn't
0: probably someone convinced her that was a bad idea. So, you know,
1: we're just, <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly, we're criticizing for her for stuff she almost did, yeah,
0: uh huh.
1: Yeah, I thought, you know, it was a lot of scandals involved,
0: not really. It's one thing that was a bit. Questionable was this other time. There was this drug company called Fidia, which was supported by Rita in the use of a certain molecule called gangliosides to treat disorders of nerves, so like pain or tingling, beginning in 1975. But then, soon after the drug was approved in Italy and a couple other places in Europe, there started to be reports of this very rare syndrome called Guillain-Barre syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is like quick onset muscle weakness that starts in the feet and then travels very quickly upwards Mm -hmm. throughout the body. It is an immune system attack on the nerves and it is reversible and people usually recover from this temporary paralysis, but it can also cause problems with breathing because it can actually cause paralysis of the diaphragm. Mm. So it can be fatal if not treated. So it's pretty severe.
1: Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with it. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. Have you had it? No, I learned a lot about it. Oh. Watch a House.
2: Ah, yeah. <laughs> I'm episode, sure.
1: Had, yeah, I'm
2: <laughs>
1: you don't that forget makes a name sense. like that.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, I learned a lot in my studies of Watch <laughs> a House. Which I've completed all seven seasons like five times.
0: So, yeah, the, these um, reports of Guillain syndrome following the drug use caused Germany to ban it in 1983. It wasn't banned in Italy until 1993, and there are some reports that there was kind of external pressure by researchers to push the drug through too quickly, and they didn't do enough testing to make sure it was safe, and Rita was involved in this, but not like centrally. So it's another thing that's kind of like, you know, yeah, she had a really long career and was involved in development of a lot of drugs. So not great, but, and then the other thing, so in 1986, Rita was recognized for her amazing work with NGF by winning the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine, wow. which she shared with her co-recipient, Stanley Cohen, who was also at Washington University with her and they isolated NGF together. She was actually the fourth Nobel Prize winner to come from the small group of 50,000 Jewish Italians, four Nobel Prize winners from this tiny community.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's like four people coming from my home suburb in Rochester. Yeah. 50,000 is a really small number. It's
2: very small. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it's, it's super impressive. But some people thought that she should have mentioned her mentors b and hamburger in her receipt of the nobel prize they thought that it was stuck up of her i guess to not mention all of the influence that they had on
1: her but oh too bad i know some it's guys just, didn't get recognition for their yeah. contributions for somebody else's amazing pioneering work
0: that's the thing it's like
1: I don't of, have sympathy.
0: Of course, there's always a ton of people involved in every Nobel Prize discovery. Yeah. Science has to build on the people who came before you. Every Nobel Prize winner has mentors and yeah. people who they base their studies on and people that they learned from. Like,
1: yeah. And not to mention, this was a woman who mm-hmm. won a Nobel Prize. So it seemed it's probably like, you know, very hyper focused on her to mention okay somebody must have helped her yes that's a great point behind this yeah I've never heard that about anybody else yeah Mm -hmm. except in a case in recent more recently Mm -hmm. uh, I guess not recently but the last few decades about um Watson and Crick yes and their discovery Mm -hmm. I mean even in my uh education in college starting in like 2010 it was like the Watson and Crick model and Rosalind Franklin was kind of like...
2: Mm -hmm. A side note. A
1: a side note, Mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, I'm sorry that uh, these people didn't get their recognition, but Uh don't try to rain on her parade. Don't try to scalpel thunder, you know?
0: Guys, she literally made her scalpels out of sewing needles and was dissecting chicken eggs in her bedroom. Exactly. I think she deserves it.
1: Yeah. (laughs) She overcame so much. Hiding from Mussolini's regime. Yes. Hiding from Hitler's regime. Mm -hmm. I mean... Come on now. Yeah.
0: So those were her controversies. So, you know, in 100 years, if that's all there is to look back on and regret, that's not so bad. Yeah,
1: I'm sure even some presidents can probably have a worse track record than that.
0: I think most presidents probably have a worse yeah, track
1: record. I think we might have even had some presidents with
0: a worse track uh, Never, never. How could you? <laughs> yeah. So she she got a lot of awards. So. I'm going to do the speed run-through, like when you watch a pharmaceutical commercial and at the end they're like, this could cause paralysis or loss of vision or you die and it's okay. <laughs> like when they speed yeah, run-through all the so side harsh. effects. Yeah. Okay, so in 1963, she received the Max Weinstein Award, first woman to do so. 1966, elected to American Academy of Arts and Sciences. 1968, elected to United States Net... <laughs> States National Academy of Sciences, 1970 Golden Plate Award, 1974 Pontifical Academy of Sciences, 1983 Louisa Gross Horwitz Prize, 1985 Ralph W. Gerard Prize, 1986 Nobel Prize, mm-hmm. we know that one, as well as the Albert Lasker Award for basic medical research, 1987 National Medal of Science, the highest American scientific honor, wow.
2: 1991
0: Laurea Honoris Causa from the University of Triste, Italy, she got a lot of honorable degrees, Foreign member of the Royal Society, and then... In addition to all of those awards, which I could even go on, there are more, but those are probably the most impressive ones, she was elected as a senator for life by the president of Italy in 2001. Did you know that was a thing? No. Senator for life? That sounds kind of scary to me. Yeah,
1: what
0: can they do? Literally be a senator for the rest of their lives. Really? Yeah, like have major votes. I I don't think that's a thing in the U.S.
1: It is. Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> you can make the most important That's true. decisions mm-hmm. in uh the judicial judicial system in this country mm-hmm. for life and you cannot be fired the only way you get out is when you die or if you kill somebody
0: so. <laughs> yeah and
1: we haven't picked the most you know Impressive people to fill those positions. No, we yeah. haven't. So, in they were lifers.
0: Except for RBG.
1: RBG, RIP.
0: So, she was elected, or not elected, appointed as a lifelong senator. She was a socialist throughout her life, which is not surprising given her background. She was often mocked and criticized by the far right. Um, they talked about sending crutches to her home to make fun of her age and for being a crutch to the government. But she didn't really, she didn't let that bother her at all. I mean, she's like 97. She's like, oh, really, you're going to send some crutches to my home and you think that'll intimidate me? When Mussolini was literally yeah, tracking seriously. me down, like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's just completely unfazed. Yeah. In 2006, actually, the Italian governmental budget rested entirely on her shoulders. She was the last deciding vote. 97 years old. She withheld her vote for the budget until the government reversed the decision to withdraw scientific funding. So she was that crucial vote, and she's like, I'm not going to let you pass this budget until you replace the scientific funding.
1: Oh, replace? Mm-hmm. I thought you said withdraw.
0: They were going to withdraw it, oh, and okay. she was like, I'm going to vote against it unless you wow. stop that nonsense.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. And how did they go?
0: They were like, okay, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they put the research funding back in. Wow. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can just picture her like her tiny little self just sitting there, like, I'm not voting until you put the research funding back.
1: <laughs> <laughs> She's trying to prevent, you know, people from having to spend their pocket money to go to the market and get a chicken burritos, yeah, you know?
0: Exactly. Yeah. Uh huh. She knew how it was. Mm-hmm. And I, I read this interview with her at age 100, and the author said, Despite her age, Levi Montalcini still works every day, exquisitely dressed, hair stylishly coiffured. Coiffured, (laughs) hands perfectly manicured, and so at age 100, she was spending her mornings at her brain institute, and then in the afternoon she went to the office of a foundation for African women's education that she created to help more African women get into science. This is how she was spending her time. And at age 103, she died in Rome. Very satisfied with her legacy, she said soon before her death, "I am not afraid of death." I'm privileged to have been able to work for so long. If I die tomorrow or in a year, it's the same. It is the message you leave behind you that counts and the young scientists who carry on your work. And then the last thing I would like to mention is that I watched this documentary that was mentioned in the Wikipedia page about her. It's called Death by Design, The Life and Times of Life and Times. And it's about apoptosis, which you actually mentioned earlier. Mm. It's all about cell program death. And the documentary itself just reminded me of like those documentaries we would watch in school when oh. teachers didn't want to teach or anything. It just had like that cheesy 90s music oh. in the background and like, those faded shots so that were, it was so funny but it in was actually the same
1: narrator type
0: of voice yes <laughs> and these interviews with people wearing like the gigantic glasses and the bad haircuts and <laughs> but i actually really enjoyed it there were these great images of like people dancing in coordination that would then cut into um, single cell organisms moving around under a microscope and then it would Fade into sheep running around a field. And it was just, it was very cheesy, but also kind of, um, I was watching it like late at night, sipping my tea. It was very calming and soothing. (laughs) But anyway, Rita was in this. This is why I'm going off on this tangent. And her twin sister, Paula, was also in it. And Paula was an artist. And Rita compared the process of science and art as both being dependent on intuition. And this was something that a lot of people said about her, that she had excellent intuition. Mm-hmm. She just kind of knew when something was off or when something could be investigated further. She was also artistic. She illustrated her research papers by hand. Oh, my God. Yeah, like she would do drawings that were published she can in the everything. papers. Yeah, she even designed her own clothes. She made clothes for herself.
1: Wow, those. Yeah. what was the word? Dapper? What, what word did they use for her clothes?
0: No, they said coiffed
1: <laughs> for her,
0: hair. For her I don't,
1: hair.
0: Yeah, I don't know what that means.
1: <laughs> Stunning. Yeah. So she does. Dapper
0: is a good one though. Yeah. We can describe her as dapper. I'm dapper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you and your Nautica. Is yeah. that all Nautica right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know Jamal
0: what? wears like two brands. Yeah. Nautica it. and Tommy
1: Hilfiger. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got I ditched polo until they improved the quality of their There you their show, go. So. Polo, if you're listening. Yeah, their interlock mesh uh, polo shirts have kind of declined over <laughs> the years. So. My friends at Starbucks, I mean, they think at me about it, so it's embarrassing.
0: But anyway. So she also wrote an autobiography called In Pursuit of Imperfection. I mean, there's nothing she didn't do. I want to read this autobiography someday. And I'll just end with this quote. It is imperfection, not perfection, that is the end result of the program written into that formidably complex engine that is the human brain, and of the influences exerted upon us by the environment and whoever takes care of us during the long years of our physical, psychological, and intellectual development. So... It just struck me because she is very clear that we live in an imperfect world. We have imperfect bodies. We have imperfect situations. But despite that, she pushed on. She made these amazing discoveries and lived her life the way she wanted it. And I think that that is what is really inspiring to me, is that she never let the circumstances drag her down. Like all Mm -hmm. of these Heroes yeah.
2: that we've discussed,
1: yeah I, I think we're starting to, as I alluded to earlier, um uncover the recipe for success here, and that is really resilient,
2: yeah,
0: so that is Rita Levi Montalcini.
1: And also, don't forget to subscribe to Reclaim the Bench on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave a review. This is one of the best ways to support our mission of amplifying the voices of those silenced in scientific and medical discovery. For even more content, including exclusive interviews or a chance to chat with us live, become a Reclaim the Bench patron at Patreon. Follow us on social media. We're on Instagram and Twitter at ReclaimTheBench. Also, stop by reclaimthebench.com to see what's on the agenda and to leave comments or suggestions on what topics you'd like to see us cover next. And if you'd like to further support our podcast, you can donate through our website. Funds will help us to maintain the infrastructure necessary to continue delivering new content.